The scripture passage that we will be looking at this morning is found in 1 Peter chapter 3. And as we are continuing this study through Peter's epistle, we come to verses 8 through 12 of chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Please give your attention to God's word. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I want to direct your attention as we begin to verse 10. If you look at verse 10, what you see there is Peter, the apostle, the leader among the apostles, quoting King David. I'll just take note of that for a moment. Peter is quoting David. When I'm reading a book or reading a commentary and I see somebody like Luther quoting Augustine or somebody like Spurgeon quoting Calvin, I take particular note to what's being said because if two spiritual giants agree on something, I want to make sure I understand what they're saying and, and, and see if I agree with it too and embrace it if it's true. And so you've got Peter, the Apostle Peter, quoting King David, two men that are definitely spiritual giants. And this is what both of them are saying. This is what Peter is saying backed up by what King David originally said. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue for evil. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Do you hear what these spiritual giants are saying to us? Whoever desires to love life and see good days. Do you love your life? I mean, think about it this morning. Do you love your life? Do you want to see good days? Peter and David are telling us how to do that. From the moment we're born into this world, we're given from many different sources kind of a checklist for what we must have in life in order to love our life. We have to have a certain degree of good health. We have to have a certain level of money and possessions. We have to have a certain quality of relationships in our lives. We need to reach a certain level of success in our calling. And if we can check off all those boxes and check off everything on that list, then we can get to the place, maybe in life, where we can say, I love my life. Boy, I love my life. But really, in the course of your life, how many, how much of your life have you had every one of those boxes checked? 
You'll notice that King David and Peter are not telling us that we need those things in order to love life and see good days. I want to reorient us for a moment in 1 Peter. I've been away for a couple weeks, and I really appreciate being able to turn over the pulpit to a man of God like Tom Houston and thank him for his preaching of the Word the last couple weeks while I was away. But just to reorient us a little bit in 1 Peter, back in chapter 1, remember we started off our study looking at how Peter talks about who we are as individuals in Christ. He sets before us our identity in Christ, and there he describes us as having been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable. We are born again children of God who have, who possess the inheritance of eternal life in the kingdom of God and the new heavens and the new earth. He says, he goes on to say in chapter 1, that we've been ransomed. We are to continually see ourselves as a ransomed people, a redeemed people, and we have been bought with the blood of Christ. That's an incredible sense of identity for each one of us as an individual if we know Christ as Lord and Savior. In the second chapter, we saw that Peter talked about our corporate identity. Who are we as we come together as Christians to form the church? And in chapter 2, he told us that we're living stones that are being built up into a glorious new temple. And that temple is built upon the cornerstone who is Jesus Christ. And Peter goes on to say in the language of the Old Testament that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's who we together are before God. What a great identity for a church. And then, as we got to the end of chapter 2, we talked about how Peter moves into a transition. Beginning in verse 11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul and keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so there, at the end, at the, actually in the middle of chapter 2, he makes a transition between this deep theology that defines who we are as individuals and who we are as a body of believers, and then he says, okay, now, how should you live? How do you, seeing yourselves in that way, if you are children of God, inheritors of the eternal kingdom, bought with the blood of Christ, and together you're forming the new temple of God, you're the chosen race, the holy priesthood, if this is who you are, then how do you live in light of that identity? And the last few weeks when we looked in First Peter, we saw how a key characteristic of how that should play out in our lives is that we are to live in submission. We are to be a people who yield to one another and yield to the God-ordained authorities in our lives. We're to yield to the civil government insofar as we're not required to disobey our Lord. We are to yield to our masters and our employers. We are to yield to the authorities in our home. We are to live lives of submission to God's authority. And that's where we ended our study last time. And so here, picking up then in verse 8, Peter says, finally. And so that's not fine. He's not summarizing the whole letter yet. 
what he's doing is he's summarizing this whole section where he's been talking about what the lifestyle of the individual believer and believers together in relationship with another, what does this look like? And he really focuses upon the relationships we have with one another. Remembering going back to what he said in chapter 2 is that we're to be constantly conscious of the fact that the world is looking at us to see what God is like. And so the way that we treat one another is really important. We glorify God by the way we treat one another. Or hopefully we do. And so in this passage, we see a description of what grace-saturated relationships should look like. And the key phrase I want you to zero in on in this entire passage, because what Peter does is he makes a statement, and then he goes back to David and Psalm 34 to back it up, to say, see, what I'm teaching you is what God's people have always been called to. And the key phrase is found in verse 9, where Peter says, Bless, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. That's a great phrase. That's a great phrase to write on your mirror. I'm always telling you, write stuff on your mirror. I don't know what your mirrors look like at home if you're taking me literally, but... Write this on your mirror so that's the first thing you see in the morning when you get up. Bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. That's how you live as a child of grace. The word blessing is an old-fashioned word. I have an older sister who was always saying, oh, bless your heart. You know, that's about the only time I ever hear that word outside of a church service or a Sunday school class. But it's so essential to what we're called to be and to do as blood-bought disciples of Jesus Christ. We are to bless others. Well, let's talk this morning, as Peter describes it here, first of all, what's the source of that blessing? If we are to live to bless others, what's going to drive that? What's going to motivate us to bless others? Where do we get... Not just the energy to do that, but where do we get the desire to do that? And then secondly, how do we do it? And then finally this morning I want to look at what's the reward of living that lifestyle. Again, you want to love life? Here's the path to loving your life and seeing good days. That's what Peter and David have told us. First of all, what's the source What's the motivation? What's the driving force in our lives that will cause us to bless others? And I want to look at verse 8. But notice here that that Peter is talking about an attitude, a way of thinking and a way of doing and an attitude of life that is not natural to us. It's not something we were born with. We're born into this world as takers. From the moment... We breathe our first breath in this life. We are born into this world as people who take from others. That's the nature we're born with. And that has to change. And that's only going to change by grace. And if you know Christ, then that means you came to him, you sought him out, you wanted to follow him, you wanted to be like him only because he took out your old stony heart and replaced it with a living heart that desires him. And that's the kind of heart that Peter describes here in verse 8. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. 
a mind and heart that's been, dis- that's been transformed by the grace of God. That's what he's describing. Let me look at each one of those just briefly, individually. Because of our new birth, we are capable of having unity of mind. And I think it's significant that Peter starts here. How do we live lives that bless one another as a witness to the world of what the glory of God looks like? How do we live that life? We need to begin with a unity of mind. Now that means more than just agreeing together that the Apostles' Creed is true. It's more than just agreeing together on the Nicene Creed or the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's more on agreeing to a particular creed. It's about sharing a worldview. It's about thinking the same way about yourself, about God, about religion, about the church, about our mission in the world, about what holiness looks like, both in our own lives and in the church and in our society. It's thinking the same way about life, about the world around you. It's seeing the world the same way. It's having the same worldview. That's what unity of mind is. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul says that if you have the Spirit of God in you, in other words, if you have been born again, if you have a new heart, if you have a new mind given to you by grace, then, he says, you have the mind of Christ. That's an amazing statement. If you're born again, you have the mind of Christ. I think about so many Mentors that I've had in my life. Pastors, elders, Sunday school teachers, professors, great authors whose books I've read over and over. Family members that have had a huge impact on my life. These are people that I would call mentors. People who I've looked at their lifestyle, the way they live. I've listened to their teaching and I've seen what's true in it. And I've embraced it. And some of those teachers and examples and models in my life have been so consistently true and so consistently faithful to what they believe is true that they've become what I would call personal mentors. But in a very real sense, if you call yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ, he is your ultimate mentor. When it comes to human mentors, I don't follow everything they teach, everything they say, everything they do, because they're sinners and they're flawed. And they some of their thinking is wrong. Some of their theology is wrong. But Christ's theology is perfect. Christ's lifestyle is perfect. Christ's teaching is perfect. Every word that came from Christ is perfect. So he is the ultimate and perfect mentor. And so my life is about conforming my thinking To his thinking. To, by grace, more and more, embrace and receive and reflect the mind of Christ. That's what salvation is all about. And there's this great verse in Philippians chapter 3. Where Paul is talking about just basic Christian life, Christian philosophy, the, the, the things that we think about God and ourselves. And in verse 15, he says this. Listen to what Paul says. Let those of you, let those of us who are mature think this way 
if, and if any in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. I've always very much appreciated Paul including that in his writings. He's basically saying to us, okay, I'm teaching you truth, and you may disagree with me, but God is going to reveal truth more and more and more to you. Understand that we are going to come together over time, leading into eternity, to where we will perfectly all share the mind of Christ. And we're all somewhere between total error and total truth right now. And we need to hold to the truth that Christ has already given to us, the truth that we've already attained by His grace. But understand that everything we disagree about in our relationships as believers, everything we disagree about, we are all striving to get to the place where we agree with Christ. One of the things I've really enjoyed over the last few weeks is uh, Pastor Tom and I have been teaching a class on baptism, and we've been particularly focusing on the controversial aspect of baptism, which is infant baptism. And it's a subject that my beloved brothers and sisters in the Lord, many of them, I disagree with them on how they interpret the Scripture. But what I've loved about this class has been this wonderful dialogue, open you know, free asking of questions and challenging of interpretations. And it's been all done in love and respect and honor to one another. And it's been very edifying to me, very encouraging to me. And what we're all striving to do is get to the place where we look at this important issue in the doctrine and life of the church where we all share the mind of Christ. Uh, Tim prayed at the end of, of, the, of the session last time and said, Lord, help us all to see this issue as you see it. And see, that's the perspective we pursue everything in the church. That's how we go about it. Lord, you see and know and give us the truth perfectly, but we're imperfect, we're flawed, we're looking through the glass darkly. Lord, help us to see it as you see it. You know, Paul didn't say, hey, you know, whatever you believe, that's, if it works for you, that's good for you. He said, God is going to reveal truth to you. Not perfectly in this life, never completely in this life, but that's what we strive for day in and day out, is to agree on what he has revealed to be true. And we are all seeking the mind of Christ as it's revealed in his word. That's what this church is about. That's why we're here. And as we get closer to that point, as we love one another and are patient with one another, we struggle to that point, God is glorified before the world. Because they see something in us that must be supernatural. A coming together of our minds. A unity of thinking. The second characteristic, interestingly, that Peter mentions, and he actually, I'm going to take two of them together. He mentions both sympathy and a tender heart. And there's an important connection between those two terms. You can't separate your mind from your heart. Sometimes Christians, often Christians try to do that. But as a person thinks, so eventually will he feel, so eventually will his attitudes be formed out of the way in which he thinks. How we think changes what we want and how we feel. And so the word sympathy, if you look at it in the original language, the word sympathy means to suffer with, 
to suffer with, to come alongside of someone who is in the midst of a trial, some kind of suffering, and to suffer alongside of that person. That's what sympathy, that's what the word draws images of. To enter into somebody's home while they're suffering. To enter into somebody's prayer life while they're suffering. To enter into their lives. To enter into their misery. To truly commiserate with them. That's what sympathy is. And then Peter mentions a tender heart. And that's that great word that actually, it's a kind of an ugly word when you break it apart in the original language. It's actually speaking of intestines. You know, it's, it's your guts. It's the, the deepest part of your guts. And it's, it's, a, it's an allusion to the deepest seat of your feelings, your emotions, your cares, your concerns. And it says, have a tender heart. Feel deep concern in your guts. And I think there's intended to be a progression here. That as our thinking conforms to the mind of Christ, and as we respond to that by entering into the lives of the people in our body of believers who are suffering, what happens then is you develop, by God's grace and the working of His Spirit in you, a tender heart. A deep concern for the needs of those people who are suffering. And a bond of love and unity takes place that you can't ever imagine otherwise. It's a progression that the Lord intends to happen. To see the needs of the people around you as Christ sees them and to love those people the way Christ loves them. That's really what the incarnation was about, wasn't it? Let me just read to you a few verses from the Gospel of Matthew. I'm going to begin in verse uh, chapter 9, verses 35 and 36. Now again, just listen carefully to this description of the ministry of Christ. Matthew 9, beginning in verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now I am... Fairly well convinced that very few people in those crowds would have described themselves as sheep without a shepherd that were helpless and in need of his mercy. Some of them would. Some of them would have interpreted their needs in very different ways. But what really matters is how Jesus saw their needs. He saw them as the Son of God. He looked into their hearts. He looked into their lives. And he saw their needs perfectly. And how did his heart respond to seeing their needs as they really were? He was moved with compassion. You see this again and again in his ministry. Over in chapter 14, in verse 14. It says, When Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Over in chapter 15, verse 32. And then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have now been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Do you see how Jesus, his ministry was driven by compassion and his compassion was driven by his ability to see the true need of the people. The incarnation, what that means is that the perfect son of God came and dwelt in our midst. He entered in to our lives. He entered into our suffering. And he was moved with compassion for the true needs that he saw when he got below the surface. 
And that's interesting because Peter then, in this list of adjectives describing the way that we relate to one another within the church, he then goes to brotherly love. And with that background, having the mind of Christ, which drives you to enter into the suffering of the other people around you and into their lives at a deeper level, and then causes you to have true mercy and compassion towards those needs, doesn't that bring out a lot more depth to the meaning of what brotherly love looks like? Certainly a lot more than just sharing a coffee after a worship service. It's a lot more than just saying when you hear about a need and the body believer saying, I'll pray for you. It's entering in and showing compassion and therefore acting upon that and showing the love of a family. I was blessed to be able to go and to a, the Keel family reunion yesterday. I spent the day with my immediate and extended family in my hometown. And there is an amazing bond in a family like that. People from my family I hadn't seen, some of them for over a decade. And yet there's a love and a commitment there because they're family. And you realize that what Peter's been talking about here in this epistle goes far beyond that kind of a blood relation. The kind of commitment we have, love we have for one another is based in our unity of mind, which produces the sympathy and the compassion of Christ. And then Peter concludes that section by saying that if we have the mind of Christ, then we're going to have a humble mind. Humility is the attitude of Christ. Pride says, bless me, bless me, bless me, I deserve it. Humility says, I don't deserve anything, how can I bless you? It's a whole different way of looking at the world. It's looking at the world through the eyes of Christ. It's what Paul was talking about in that great passage in Philippians chapter 2. I mean, this is such a familiar passage, but in light of what Peter has been, been saying to us, listen again to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 about the mind of Christ. He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And you know what he says next? You know the passage. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself to become, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you hear what Paul's saying? The love that he and Peter are talking about, the mind of Christ that produces the kind of compassion and love and blessing for others that the mind of Christ produced, that's, ba- that's the love of the cross. That's the love of the gospel. That's what we would call the gospel ethic of the church. The cross is the ultimate example of what we're talking about. Christ loved us, so we ought to love one another in the same way. The mind of Christ brings the unity of mind, a love for one another, and a humility that leads to blessing others. Well, then let me just take a few moments to talk about how, what does that look like? How does that work? What's the method of blessing? And what's interesting to me in this passage in 1 Peter 3 
is that Peter focuses upon our words. Did you notice that? When he says you were called to bless others, he focuses on your words. And that's appropriate because the Greek word that he uses for bless, the key term that we're focused on this morning, the Greek word for bless is the word that we get eulogized from. And what's a eulogy? It's when you're at a funeral and somebody stands up and says all kinds of really nice things about the person who just passed away. And so, literally, Peter is saying, eulogize one another. Bless one another with your words towards one another. And that makes sense, that Peter would put the focus there primarily and first in his progression, because, as Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Your mouth, the words that come from your mouth, are going to reveal the thoughts and attitudes of your heart towards the people around you. And again, we have this process. See what happens. We receive the mind of Christ, which leads to the heart of compassion, which then leads to words of grace, which will ultimately end up in good deeds, blessing one another with our actions. But the primacy is placed on how you use your mouth. It's what Paul says in Ephesians 4. He says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as as good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. That's an incredibly high standard when you think about it. That the words that come out of your mouth to another person be only for the building up of that other person and of imparting grace to them. How have you used your mouth in the last few days, the last week? How many of the words that have come out of your mouth have been only to build up your brothers and sisters and to impart grace to them? That's the primary means of blessing one another that Peter has in mind. So much of what he says here focuses on the words of our mouths. We bless others by speaking well of them, by encouraging them, by rebuking them when they stray from obedience, by praying for them, and by witnessing to them. So many ways in which we bless others with our words. Now, of course, as he goes on in verse 11, he goes on to say that blessing another person certainly involves more than just words. James taught us that if you just say nice words, it's ultimately not enough. So Peter goes on to say, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. And again, that's the ultimate last step of this progression of having the mind of Christ, which produces the sympathy and compassion of Christ, which produces good words to bless others, then eventually culminates in good actions And that's that gospel ethic which looks at the other people around you and say, what can I do to cause this person to prosper in the eyes of God? To cause them to become more of what God wants them to be and to be where God wants them to be. And what Peter, and I just want to wrap it up by pointing to what Peter, you notice what Peter points to as the ultimate expression of, the ultimate evidence 
that we've been born again. The ultimate evidence that we have this new heart, that we have the mind of Christ, that we have the compassion of Christ. The ultimate example is when we bless not just our friends, not just our family members, not just our church family members, but when we even bless our enemies. Peter says in verses 9 and 10, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Now, this is something that Peter had already referred to back in chapter 2, verse 20. He says, For what credit is is it to you when you sin and are beaten for it, if you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, it is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We've already talked about how when we suffer, and particularly so many of Peter's readers had been through real suffering and persecution, he says you are to respond to that. The evidence of the new birth, the evidence of the mind of Christ, the evidence of the heart of Christ is that you respond to reviling, you respond to verbal abuse, to respond to physical abuse, you respond to the taking of your possessions, not with retaliation, not with reviling, but with blessing. It's a key part of our witness before the world is that because we trust in him who judges justly, Therefore, we are freed up to even respond to abuse with blessing. Back in Romans chapter 12, this is what Paul says. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. God will take care of the issues of justice. We are called by grace, we are saved by grace, and we live by grace. And so when we are reviled and persecuted and abused, we are freed up to respond with blessing, trusting that the Lord will make all wrongs right. You see... Blessing those who bless you is nothing special in the eyes of God. Jesus made that point very clearly. Blessing those who are going to bless you in return is nothing special. Any unbeliever can and does do that. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 6, verses 33 through 36. He said, If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be called sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. You see, Peter, again, he keeps calling us back to this Be conscious of the fact that the world is looking at the church to see what God is like, to see if he's real, to see if he really has done anything in our lives or not. And the evidence of that is, yes, that we live to bless one another, but we especially bless one another even when we offend one another, even when there's division, even when we're at odds with one another, even when we 
sin against one another, we still bless one another. And even when the world attacks us, when the world persecutes us, when the world ridicules us, we don't respond with retaliation, but we respond with blessing. That shows us, Jesus said, and Peter says, to be sons of the Most High. We're merciful just like God is merciful. We want the rain to fall on the unjust just like God wants the rain to fall on the unjust. It's what sets us apart. It's interesting. If you go back to Psalm 34 and you look at the beginning of the psalm, you know many of the psalms have titles. And the title of Psalm 34 says that this, that this psalm was written by David when he was on the run from Saul. And you know that part of David's life where he was... Uh, driven out of Saul's throne room and Saul was trying to kill him, chasing him through the wilderness, trying to kill him. And what's interesting, in preparation for this message, I went back to 1 Samuel chapter 22 to just reorient myself about what was going on in David's life during that ministry because it was in that context in which he wrote these words. And what's interesting, there's one, one verse that jumped out of me in chapter 22, talked about the 400 men that gathered to David while he was in exile, or whatnot. he wasn't, uh, hadn't been on the throne yet, so he wasn't literally in exile, but while he was driven out of the country, there were 400 men that were drawn to him to form an army around him. But listen to this description of them, those 400 men. It says, everyone who is in distress and everyone who is in debt and everyone who is bitter in soul. These were the kind of men that gathered around, that gathered around David. Is that because David, that's the only kind of men that he could gather? No. It's because that's the kind of man David was. He was a man who was compassionate. He had the mind of the Lord and therefore he had the compassion of the Lord. And so those who were outcasts in his own society were the ones that were drawn to him to be loyal to him, to support him, to be a part of the true church as he represented it. And then you remember as the story goes on, twice Saul had the opportunity to kill David. Or to, I'm sorry, the other way around. Twice David had the opportunity to kill Saul. To end the persecution, to end the chase, to end the attacks. He could have killed Saul. He could have killed Saul as he slept in the camp. He could have killed Saul as he went into the cave by himself. But he didn't. As he said, literally he said, I will not lay a hand on God's anointed. He trusted the Lord. Just like Jesus suffered and trusted in the Lord to do what was right. It said that David said, I will not lay a hand on God's anointed. And but what was fascinating to me, I get to the whole end of this. I, here I am studying First Peter chapter 3, reading this whole story of David's conflict with Saul. And I get to the very end and listen to what Saul said to David. After David pointed out to him, he had these opportunities to kill him. Listen to what Saul said to David. He said, you, this is First Samuel 24, 17. You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. 